Good morning. Welcome to Into One Church. Glad to have you with us here today. I'm Justin Kurzweil, and I'll be doing the scripture reading, which comes from Romans 12, verses 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position and do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Laura. Hey, Lord. So how did it go with Kat? Did you talk to her? Oh, well, Lord, not exactly. <laughs> did you forgive her? Well, Lord, I mean, I was just thinking, like, why should I forgive her? <laughs> because I asked you to. Well, yeah, I know you did, Lord, but why? Well, you shouldn't have to know why, just that I asked you to do it. That doesn't make any sense, Lord. I mean, you don't understand the situation. Kathleen has an attitude problem. Laura, you believe that I know what is best for you and for Kat? Well, yeah, Lord. Then you'll do this. But Lord... This is no different than when I've asked you to do anything else. Yes, this is, Lord. This is way different. When I asked you to quit your job, you quit. Well, of course, Lord, but I didn't like my job, so I was happy to leave, you know? I mean, this is way different. Okay, Lord, you know what? I've got an idea. How about we give it a week and I'll pray about it? Uh, I'll give you my answer now. Uh, but, Lord... Look, Kat's coming by here very soon. She's coming okay? by here? Yes. Well, let's go. Now's your no. chance to talk to no. her. I want you to but forgive Lord, her. Lord, you don't understand it. Hey, Laura, hi. It's been like two hi. weeks wow. since we've had coffee. Yeah. Oh, it has. We should totally get together this week. Oh, wow, I can't do that. I am so busy. Oh, yeah. Well, how about next week? Well, you know, actually, I don't think it's going to happen for a while. Oh, well, is everything okay? Oh, yeah, everything's great. Uh-huh. All right. Um, I guess I'll just um, see you later then. Bye. <laughs> Lord, did you hear that attitude? I thought you were going to forgive her. I thought you said we could wait a week, Lord. No, you said that. Oh, okay, Lord, you're being unreasonable, okay? Why don't you just go talk to Kathleen and have her come to me and ask for my forgiveness? Laura, you need to obey. I want you to forgive Kat. But Lord... Why do you keep calling me Lord? You won't even do what I ask. ...faith in the kingdom today. And to do that, uh, you're going to need some notes. If you would like some notes from up here, there's still some more. And there's pens here. There's uh, notes going to be on our screen. There's notes that are on your cell phone if you like to do that. Free app called Uversion. Look under Live Events. Look under Into One. And you can find it. Again, this, note, um, this week is probably a little bit heavier on notes than we are some other times because I wanted to give you more reference places, more places that you can come back to later on, and hopefully that can help you uh, remember stuff, not because what I say is important, but because I'm giving you some scripture passages and what they will tell you is important, and they're good things to remind ourselves of. Um, so just uh, because we're right at the beginning here and you're all so interested right now, I wanted to remind you about Smiles for Lent. We have officially entered that season, the countdown to Easter. It's a season when people all over the world decide, 
I want to remove a distraction. I want to try and prepare myself in some way. And so Lent has been that traditionally. And so what we are trying to encourage as a body, do whatever it is you're going to do individually, but as a group, let's do something for Lent instead of not doing something for Lent. And the do is smiles for Lent. We want you to go out of your way to look for places, opportunities, people where you can display the love of Christ in small, tiny ways or in great, big, enormous ways. And you can bring about a smile. You can consciously go about your week saying, I am looking to make a difference in people's lives. If they don't actually smile, that's not the key. What we're looking for is the desire, the intent, the will to say, I will give grace where I go. I'm going to open doors. I'm going to um, offer to move chairs. I'm going to help people when they, they can't get their groceries in, the, in the, um, the trunk. I'm going to pay for somebody when they go out for coffee. I'm going to take some extra time to talk about somebody and talk to them personally. What can you do that will spread this love of Jesus? That's what we're asking. And then, because it's so much better when we know what's happening, we're trying to compile those and redistribute them, and we're tagging it with smiles for Lent. So if you're a Twitter, er, er, then you can tweet what you have done and tag it with a hashtag, smiles for Lent. Put the hashtag into one on there as well. I'll find these, and I'm going to repost them on our Facebook page and on our Twitter account to let people know what's going on. We're not focusing on the names. We're not focusing on trying to say, well, it looks like so-and-so's got a lot more going on. We're trying to take the names out to just say from within us, these things are happening. Good is being done. And I know it's not within your nature to want to get credit for it. So you're not getting credit for it, okay? What you're doing is trying to encourage somebody else that we would call each other forward, that we would inspire people to acts of goodness and grace. I mean, Scripture tells us that we're supposed to do that, right? That we would, um, what would be a more scriptural kind of word? We would exhort one another to acts of goodness and, and charity. Be involved. Participate with that, and let's spread it. Because I know you love it, we're going to start with a little bit of church history today. So a little bit, a quick, 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 lesson. We're starting in the 1500s, somewhere in the 1500s, and it's not a date, it's a time. It's, a, it's over there. The world is at war. It seems like whenever you pick out a date, it seems you could say the world's at war somewhere, but this is the world is at war. And as far as the West, uh, the Western nations are experiencing it, there is a battle between Christians and Muslims. It's the Turks. It's those Turks. That's what they were called then, and they are encroaching upon Christian lands. They are trying to cross borders and set new parameters. It's also the time of the Christian Reformation. This is when we had the Catholic Church and the um, Orthodox, and breaking away are the Protestants. Countries have now decided to align themselves with one or the other. There are now Catholic countries and Protestant countries. This has moved along. We've got a little bit more time here to actually have had this to come up. And these countries find it difficult now to have peaceful relations, even as Christian nations. There is enmity. There is discomfort in them. Catholic countries, Protestant countries. And with this busy time, there's another group that's starting to form. These people are called the radical reformers. 
They are the early Anabaptists. Now, the Christian Missionary Alliance is not officially an Anabaptist faith because we have official lines that everything falls. Christian Missionary Alliance didn't start till much, 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 much later. And so we have parts that come. But if there's a group that we have over history resonated with, it would be Anabaptists. It's not that we've been against other people necessarily. It's just we had a lot of values in common with Anabaptists. The early Anabaptists would be the students of the early Protestant reformers. So if you can imagine, these are the, the 20-somethings um, that are sitting in seminaries now that are being run by the Protestant reformers. So Luther and Zwingli, um, these are guys that are now teaching and they have these other people. So once the reform had started, these radical reformers wanted to keep it going. They wanted to radicalize the faith. They said, let's take it back to its roots. That's what the Reformation started for, to get back to some of this. And so they are in their university, their seminary days, and you know how those people are. They always get a little bit radical, a little bit crazy. They got to get their cause. And so the professors were saying, what we have done as the Reformation, we said, sola scriptura. That's Latin for just the scriptures. That's what we want to believe in. And so they started that and they said, let's get back to the Bible. We have a copy. You can read it, get in it, learn it for yourself. And the students are saying, these are great lessons. I love what you're saying. And the lessons are being taught, but the students are now saying, hold on a second. You keep telling us to go back to the Bible, sola scriptura, but that's not true. That's not what you do. There's all kinds of places that you still like to have what you're used to doing. And they kept looking at the Scriptures and saying, the Scripture's telling us more. We should do these things. Or, in some cases, the Scripture is telling us less. We've added things. And so one of those key parts that comes up, helps with the name Anabaptist, was child baptism. And they said, well, it doesn't look like the Scripture's teaching that. It looks like what we believe is that baptism in the Bible was always about someone who made a choice. There was faith. They made a choice, and what that's grown to be is adult believer's baptism. Now, I recognize, we just stop the history for a moment, there's all kinds of people who believe different things. Okay, There's all kinds of people who believe in child baptism. So the goal of what we're doing today has nothing to do with child baptism. Okay, It's not about whether it's right or wrong. This is a story from history where this came up. One of the great things I love about being part of the Christian Missionary Alliance is our ability to get along with people who are not exactly the same because it's an alliance. It's an alliance of people who will follow Christ. And there's going to be variation in what that looks like and what we're trying to get better at and what this church has specifically said what we're going to be about is how do we get along with people who are not exactly the same as and be together in unity. So they found that this baptism issue was significant to them. And they were moving along and saying, it looks like individual choice. It looks like a, a sign of faith. You cannot be born in. Biologically, you don't become a Christian. Biology has nothing to do with Christianity. And because you live in a certain country, shouldn't dictate what it is that you actually say you have faith for. This is a problem because right now, in the physical world, you're biologically born into a family and biologically, physically born into a country. And what they would say is when you are baptized, that moment of baptism 
is when you cross the line. You cross the line and you officially join the church in baptism. But you would also officially become a citizen of that country. And it was one event. So if you were born in France, France was a Catholic country, you were born into France, you were born Catholic. And the day that you became Catholic in your child baptism was the same day that you became a French citizen. If you were born in, in England, you were born Anglican. And when you were baptized in, you became Anglican and British. If you were born in Germany, the day that you were baptized was the day that you joined the Lutheran church and the day that you became a citizen of Germany. And these Anabaptist radical reformers were saying, that's not right. We talk about now all about this idea of the separation of church and state. And the reason we talk about it is because of this. There was absolutely no separation. There was complete integration between church and state. And it caused all kinds of problems. Baptism was one of those things. The other one that started to come out was nonviolence. They said we should get back to the roots of what Jesus was about what the apostles were about, what the early Christians were about, what the early church was about. They didn't fight. And for 300 years, the Christians were identified as non-violent people. Roughly 300. And then we have this time in 312. When 312 is the time, 312, 313, when things changed radically, Constantine was the emperor and he officially declared that the religion of the state would now be Christianity. Shoop. And for the first time in history, Christianity went from being the persecuted people, the ones we throw to the lions, to being the ones who now had military might. And once we got military might, it seems that theology got rewritten. We sat down and we said, we're going to blend this church and state thing, and what the church said was, well, we're going to do what they do. And the state says, it's awesome. We have now a way to bring people in and we will continue to enforce things the way that we enforce them because we're the state and that's what we will always do. And they blurred. And what Jesus taught began to be diminished and what we started to do was deal with what it is to run an empire. We became overlapped and we became corrupted. They said, we've lost our way. That's what these radical reformers were saying. We've lost our way. We need to repent. We've gone off the rails. This all happened in a real-world kind of place. It wasn't a seminary kind of discussion where let's just talk about theology and there's no consequence to any of this. When this was arising is when the Turks were actually expanding their lands against Christians. The Turks, the Muslims, that's what they were called at that time. So that meant to take a view that said we should not fight. As Christians, I will not kill the church, Protestant and Catholic, began to say, it's heresy. You're taking a statement and a stance against the church. You're taking a statement and a stance against God himself. And now you've taken a step officially against the government. This is now an act of treason. You say, I'm a conscientious dissenter? They say, nah-uh. Pick it up. We're going to business. And if you would be against that, you have now been excluded from your church. They would tell you that you're excluded from the grace of God, and you'd be charged with treason. 
You have now fully crossed that line. And so as they are developing this theology, they are not doing it in a safe world. They weren't doing it to look for trouble. They were saying, we have to be honest. Let's get back to the roots of our faith. Where does this come from? The Anabaptist understanding was this, that if you go onto the battlefield, um, a Muslim would expand their kingdom using the sword because they, are, they could be excused from what they're doing because to some degree there's an ignorance. They don't have a call to peace in the same way. But when Christians pick up the sword, we don't have an excuse. For Jesus calls us to put down the sword and pick up the cross. The Anabaptists lived and understood this with a live, non-theoretical sense of the immediate, on-the-job, ready-to-kill-or-be-killed kind of life. That's what it was like. That's when the belief was born. That's when it was lived out. When a Muslim is on the battlefield with a sword in his hand and he's ready to kill, he's being authentic to the faith that he believes in, or at least a, a, a version of it, because they are following what Muhammad lived. When a Christian comes out to the battlefield, picks up a sword and meets him, they're saying that the Christian became a hypocrite at that point. It's the Christian who stepped out of faith. That made people uncomfortable. And I imagine that right now, the statements that these early Anabaptists make make you feel a little bit uncomfortable right now. We don't normally talk about those sorts of things. They don't come up. What about this situation? What about that situation? I'm telling you a story. That's the tradition that began there. Those statements cause discomfort. They say, how will I apply this to my real lived out life in an everyday situation? But that's what Jesus did when he came. He said all the time, what he did was to comfort the afflicted. And on the other side of that was he came to afflict the comfortable. You must think. You must engage. You must solve this problem you must put together the different pieces. So these folks were known as the Radical Reformation. The, there was the Protestant Reformation and the Radical Reformation. It was a step beyond. They were called radicals. They were called Anabaptists. Radical comes from the Latin word radix, R-A-D-I-X, which means root. doesn't sound like they go together, but what a radical is being is someone who's getting back to the roots. They understood that to be a martyr was to be a witness. And they understood that because that's what the words mean. The word witness is the word martyr. They were the same thing. Initially, it just meant to be a witness of your faith. That notion comes clearly out. Acts 1.8, if you want to look there. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my... What? in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Or you could read that and you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The word witness is the word martyr. You are going to become martyrs to me. That was the sales pitch. He also said pick up your cross. There wasn't a whole lot of sales pitching going on in what Jesus was saying. Good news to all the disciples. This is after his resurrection. He comes back and says, all right, time to become a martyr. But no one was afraid of that because it didn't mean something. So you're asking yourself, well, when did the word martyr start to mean something more than just witness? Is that what you're asking yourself? It's, it's good. I'm glad that you're asking that question. It's a very good question. It's very insightful on your part. Centuries, that's how things happen. Over time, what we saw is that Christians were being oppressed. They were being persecuted. And it's not like they were being made fun of. 
It's not like somebody was poking, hey, nice fish on your car. No, oppression in this place was, you lost your job, you lost your house, we're putting you in the ring with, with uh, hungry lions. It was a different level. But Christians began to be identified as those who died well. For centuries, Christians were the poor. They were the poorly educated. They were not elite. They were the rabble. They were not good at arguing well. They were not involved in discourse. They were not involved in high polemics. They were not involved in an ad campaign that would try and clear up their name and make things clear for people. One of the ways that Rome tried to stamp out the movement was horribly graphic public executions in order to dissuade people from ever joining this upstart movement of following Jesus. But it backfired. There would be public executions in towns and villages and in cities, and they would call the people in and say, here's what's going to happen. But what they kept showing was that Christians died well. They would tie these people up, and they would have them in front of them, and then there'd be these folks who were praying for the people who were killing them. And not just one. Time after time after time, people would watch as they're about to be executed. They would watch their people that they know from their village praying for the people who are about to kill them. And the more they killed of the Christians, the more the people wanted to join Christianity because they said, how can you live like that? Tell me of this hope that you have within you. How do you face this discomfort in real life and, and, and face death? I don't have that kind of peace and things are going well for me. How do you do that? What that's like, oh, I want to be a part of that. I need to know more about this. I want in. And so people began to convert. And for many centuries, people just died witnessing to Jesus. The last word on their mouth was Jesus. And they heard that. So that what became known as a witness is what we would identify now as a martyr. Now, martyr has been misused or, or redefined beyond that. But the word martyr having to do with dying for your faith came from early Christians who died well, not one, not two, but hundreds and thousands of people who said, I will die, and as I die, I will pray for you. And I don't know what kind of a sales pitch that's walking on you right now, but for me, that's just darn scary. I don't know what it's like to be in that kind of a place. I don't really want to find out. But for people in that world, they were saying, this is incredible. So we go back to the 1500s. We've got these radicals, this Anabaptists that they knew that this was true, that today they could live or today they could die. They might very well lose it all. And spoiler alert, they did. The Catholics killed them. The Protestants killed them. The Muslims killed them. Because they didn't fight. They got mowed down. And people say, that's ridiculous. What kind of a crazy way is that to live? And at the same time, their movement swelled. Because people saw this and they said, I don't get it. That's so not like the life that I live. How? Why? What is going on? Let me understand more what's going on here. They died like Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, we see one of the first and purest moments of conversion. You've got a Roman centurion who's, who's still got his hands covered in the blood as he, he's trying to clean them off. He's just been involved in setting Jesus up to be crucified. He's just been there splattered by the blood as the hammers are going in, and it's gross, 
and it's nasty. He just did that. They put the cross up, and they watch, and he says, surely this man must be the Son of God. The resurrection hasn't happened yet. He just saw how Jesus died. He heard what Jesus said when he was dying, and that was powerful enough. That witness that Jesus gave at that moment was powerful enough to cause his conversion. We need to live well. And if need be, we need to die well. Because it's always okay to die for a cause. It's just not the same to kill for a cause. So where do we see this from Jesus? Where does this come up? Revelation. Go right to the end. Revelation chapter 2. He's talking to the different churches. And so this is um, one of the stories looking into what's going on in the church. Revelation 2, starting at verse 2. I know your deeds your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You identify evil well. You take a strong stand against sin. You're uncompromising. In your presence, people are not allowed to be evil. You shut it down. You close the door on that. You know the law. You know your doctrine. You know those things really well, and it is your desire for others to follow them as you do. But that's not enough. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come and I will remove the lampstand from its place, even though you know the law, even though you work hard to keep the law. Good doctrine. You teach others good doctrine. You're staunchly religious. But you are not following Jesus in one of the simplest and plainest of ways. The radical movement said, come back, repent, get back to the basics. Now, part of the roots would be Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. And we're going to go to Luke 13, and we're going to look at that. Jesus taught about the kingdom all the time. That's what his message was again and again and again. The kingdom was a part of his good news announcement. The good news, the gospel, is the kingdom. And he said the kingdom is at hand right in front of you, right around you. The kingdom is being shaped and it's coming to life. The kingdom was a short-form way for Jesus to describe what it was like for Jesus to be king and us to live in his kingdom. When we live as Jesus, with Jesus as king, we find ourselves aligned with others who are citizens of the same kingdom, regardless of where we live. There is a culture that it looks like. There's a kingdom ethic that we start to understand together. So the kingdom acknowledges a king and defines our relationships with other citizens within that kingdom. And Jesus would talk about this again and again and again, never in a way that you could get a ruler out and start drawing, always in a picture way, always in a metaphor, and no metaphor for him was ever complete. He would just give you glimpses. It's like this. It's like this. It's like this. And you'd have to put those things together to get what it was like. So here we start the, the, the contrast between the kingdom and the caliphate. And we start with the kingdom. 
Luke chapter 13, starting at verse 18. One of the stories that Jesus would talk about with the kingdom, one of the ways he was parabling, always parabling, not again saying, this is what you must do. He said, it's like this. Here's a story. What do you get from the story? This is a really, really brief one. Look at this, and then we'll look at the caliphate. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed which rode in on an ironclad chariot, headlong into its enemies, slaying all the evil ones, sending the wicked straight to the hell that they so richly deserve. That's kind of the way that we like to see it sometimes. The cleaning house, getting rid of those things. That's not what a mustard seed does. It's not what a mustard seed is like. They're tiny, little things. He said, the kingdom is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. That's the whole story. That's it. Oh, great, thanks, Jesus. That was really helpful. What does that mean? Very simple, but Jesus knows what he's doing, and we have to have a bit more of a first century mind to get this. It's just loaded with symbology. It's just loaded with this means that. These are things that should be there. And if you're first century, it would be easier. What he's doing is jabbing a massive stick in the side of the status quo and saying, you've got to think about this thing differently. Three quick observations here. The one, the kingdom grows slowly. That's not popular in North America. Let's just get that clear right away. What we want is massive, monumental growth. We can see it. It's all around us. We're overwhelmed by it. That means God is at work, right? That's the way it seems. The kingdom grows slowly, like a mustard seed. It's small. It's tiny. It doesn't barrel ahead. It's not aggressive. It doesn't drive. It goes and grows slowly and quietly, gently, organically. It grows secretly. It grows underground. You don't always see what's happening. There are heart areas that are always changing. And when the heart changes, then you become more part of the kingdom. The kingdom is growing and things are being produced. Number two, the kingdom grows to miraculous proportions. It became a tree. I don't know how um, horticultural you are. Mustard seeds don't grow into trees. They grow into bushes, relatively small bushes. That's what they do. It's not a typical way to see a mustard plant to see it as a tree. Mustard seeds don't produce mustard trees. They produce mustard bushes. Why is this one different? It's tiny, and it's an insignificant start, but it appears that it will grow beyond what you think it can possibly accomplish. It will grow to be something you could never predict. You would never be able to map out what will happen. And when it does, the kingdom grows to bless all, including enemies. How is he saying that here? The birds of the air, Common expression. You'll hear Jesus say this again and again, right? The birds of the air. The birds coming like this. The birds are a common symbol of the first century. It means oppression in a, in a larger sort of sense. It means something that's swirling around with unsteadiness. But there's something more specific that they would be hearing if you were in the first century Palestine. The birds were always circling around Israel. The birds of the air doesn't refer to Israel. It refers to people anybody that's not Israel, really. It's not just a parable about a bush or a tree or, or seeds or birds. All these things have other meanings. The mustard tree, the external to it is a bird. There's a tree, that was the kingdom, but external to that is the birds of the air. They're external to the kingdom. 
first century Rome would be a way to understand birds. Their symbol was the eagle. And if you lived in a Roman-controlled area, you would find that there are standards, flags, armor. They all display the eagle. The shields. Outside of buildings that Rome had claimed, there would be eagles. It was said that um, when the legions were coming, the people would say, the eagles are coming. That was a way to say that Rome was coming. They are around us. Jesus is saying the birds of the air. What's the most common bird that you would know? Even the Romans will be welcome in the kingdom. Even the Romans will be able to find peace. They will be able to find rest in this kingdom. We are going to build something that will bless people even if they are not part of us. They can be blessed by us. There is room for blessing for us, for everyone, even our enemies. The caliphate is much different than the kingdom. Jesus knew that the way a seed turns into a bush is by the seed ceasing to be a seed. Death is the route to life in the kingdom. It's not taking the lives of others, but laying down our lives that the kingdom grows. John 12, 24, Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It bears much fruit. Jesus says something beautiful begins by people laying down their lives. Watch me. I'll lead the way. And he meant that in a spiritual sort of sense and in a literal sort of sense. We lay down our lives in multiple ways. When he is before Pilate and Pilate is talking to Jesus, he says, you think you're the king of a kingdom? You think that's what you are? I'm the king. I rule here. It's my rules. I have the power of life and death over you. And Pilate's saying this to Jesus because he's looking at Jesus, and Jesus doesn't look intimidated. He doesn't look upset as much as Pilate thinks he should. And so he's trying to clarify, you think your kingdom is winning? Buddy, life and death, I've got it over you right this moment. How can you possibly think that your power is greater than my power? Your kingdom is losing and mine is winning. And then Jesus tries to help Pilate understand. John 18, 36, it says, um, Jesus tells him, my kingdom is not of this world. So, he, you know, first honest, so you're crazy, right? That's what that means. Oh, it's not of this world. Okay, so you're crazy pants. He's saying it's not governed by worldly things. It descends from heaven and it comes with a whole new way of living. How does he distinguish that kingdom? What does the kingdom look like to Jesus that he wants Pilate to understand why it's not what you think? My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would what? They would fight to prevent my arrest. But now my kingdom is from another place. A distinguishing mark of his kingdom was to say, it's not like that. And this distinguishes it quite clearly from what the caliphate of Allah looks like. The caliphate of Allah spreads in a number of different ways, but it is safe to say, we have to be honest, not all Muslims are violent. It is more difficult to come to honestly state that Islam is a religion of peace. We're in a difficult spot there. 
It spreads in a variety of ways, but it does not exclude the sword. That's a nice way of saying it. The caliphate uses the sword, the kingdom uses the cross. Jihad, or holy war, is part of spreading an earthly kingdom. Jihad can mean an internal struggle. So this is the way we hear it described frequently for us. It's an internal struggle. It's the ongoing warring against the natures within. But it is used primarily in the Quran to refer to this worldly, violent struggle. The kingdom of Christ is also at war. But it is a spiritual war. And we use spiritual warfare against an unseen enemy. We are not trying to acquire land through physical force. The caliphate is rooted in the acquisition of physical space. It needs physical land and more physical land. We need this to set up the earthly kingdom, whereas the kingdom of Christ is a relational realm where no matter what nation we find ourselves in on the planet, we are connected with each other as fellow citizens of a different way of living where Jesus is our Lord. In the caliphate, how one lives is enforced through Sharia law. In the kingdom of Jesus, we live inspired by the love ethic and example of Jesus. Sharia must be externally forced. And those are the stories that we're hearing more and more about. The external force to follow Sharia because it's a law. That's the way you enforce a law. Whether or not it's Sharia law or Canadian law, we enforce them externally by force. The law tells you what to do, and if you don't do it, there are consequences when you don't do it. The punishments for breaking Sharia law are severe. The kingdom of Christ is internally inspired. The Holy Spirit motivates convicts us, moving us. And we have brothers and sisters who come alongside and encourage one another to this life. The kingdom and the caliphate are very different. I don't want to linger in the caliphate. What I want to do is I want to take you to the kingdom. What does the kingdom look like? So there's a couple of passages I want to show to you. 1 Peter 2, 9 but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. That means you don't require someone to, to mediate between you and God. You have access directly to God himself. The Holy Spirit of God lives within us and advocates on our behalf. We have passed that point of requiring the priest. Jesus is our priest. He calls himself the high priest. We are a holy priesthood, a, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Look at Paul, the apostle. That's a nice way to say that Paul was an apostle, the former terrorist. That's what he was. If you were an early Christian, Paul was a terrorist. He's one who did violence in the name of God. That the rules of God must be followed on penalty of death. That's what Paul did. That's what he was like. And he says in Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That's as if to say that our enemies are not flesh and blood. We are not fighting flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. As we live our personal lives, we are taking uh, every thought captive. As we look to deal with the world around us, we demolish the arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Anything that argues against God, it is our job to demolish. How do we demolish those things? What does it look like? Those things that set itself up against the knowledge of God. We have to have the knowledge of God coming forth. What does that look like? It looks like people who look like Jesus. How do you know what it's really like? We see live, living examples. When Jesus said, I want them to understand what God is like, I want them to get this, what was his solution? I will come and I will live among them. I will do that. I will come to them. They hate me. And you know what? I'm going to die for them anyway. I will show them what the kingdom is like through my life lived out. Romans 12, 14 to 21, bless those who persecute you. You want to know what the kingdom looks like and you want more of a checklist to go down? Here's more of a checklist and less of a picture. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. That was hard for us this week. My next door neighbor has a six-week-old baby who died on Monday night. Do you know what to, to say to someone who just lost their six-week-old baby? Because I don't. Mourning with someone, coming alongside them and just letting them talk. That's not like a, a glossed over kind of passage. They, they put it in here because in this world you will have trouble. We're going to be around people who need to mourn and we need to help them through those things. And that's not 15 minutes. That's an ongoing day after day kind of process. We're called to live in harmony with one another, even if we don't agree on everything. What makes that easier is if we are not proud and if we're willing to associate with people of low position. We shouldn't be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. There's a reason that you have to say that, right? Because the default position is I'll give what I get. You gave me that, I'll give you more back. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, what's our job description? I'm not in charge of judgment and I'm not in charge of vengeance. What am I supposed to do? My enemy is hungry, I feed him. If he is thirsty, I give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. This is the one that sums it up really, really nicely. When the world is gone to hell in a handbasket, everything around you is going wrong. Do not be overcome by evil. Do not become evil because of the evil. Overcome evil with good. That was the strategy. How is Jesus going to save the world? He's going to die. That was not the way we saw it. This, my friends, is the kingdom that Jesus called us to. He described for us. This is what it looks like. If you're hearing another gospel, if you're hearing another message, even if it comes from an angel, Galatians 1.8 tells us, even if it comes from an angel and it doesn't talk like this, it doesn't talk about Jesus, then ignore it. Put it aside. The whole premise of Islam is that the Quran was dictated word for word to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel. That's their story. I'm not going to say that didn't happen. But what I do know is the Bible says, Galatians 1.8, very clearly, even if I come back, Paul is talking, and I give you another gospel, ignore it. If it's not this, it's not right. Even if an angel comes, ignore it. It's not right. So this is some of the problem that we have with the idea of the Quran. It's also one of the problems we have with the Book of Mormon. A later revelation. If it doesn't point to Jesus, then it doesn't point in the right direction. If you've heard of the kingdom today, and you said, that's something that I need to know more about. That's something that I haven't committed myself to yet, but I'd like to. This is the call. It's not a call to have to. It's a call of welcome. You're not compelled. You're not forced. You're welcome. Inspired from within to respond in this way. Kirk's going to come and pray for us as we finish this time. And if this is something that is, is, is compelling to you, you need more, then we need to talk more. It's not something that we can solve simply in just a moment. We need to have a conversation. But we need to have those conversations. We need to take the truth that's in the Scripture and talk about it. Will it be hard for us sometimes? Yes. Will it go against some of the things that we've believed all of our life? Yes. But don't accept blindly, engage. We are not afraid of you engaging with our Scripture or our Savior. Have your doubt, but come. Have your questions, but come. We can talk about it. The kingdom is for you, for your freedom, for your hope, for your connection to God. with each, to each other.
for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for finishing off the caliphate in the kingdom. It's better when you're here because we miss part of us when you're not. 